Romans chapter 7, and specifically at verses 13 through 25. And I actually want to begin reading in verse 12 just for the sake of a little bit of context here. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good, the law or the commandment that was just spoken about, did the law then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Through what is good. That's the law. Now notice that. Sin produces death. It's the major culprit. But it does it with the law. It's through what is good. It's the law that's good. So understand this. That even though Paul's vindicating the law, he also is showing that it's actually being used nevertheless to kill us. And this is all done in order that sin might be shown to be sin. The very way it uses the law to kill us shows how much sin is is sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The, The point is, sin is so wicked, it's so vile, it's so depraved, it takes what's good and uses it against us to bring death to us. Four, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Again, there's a vindication of the law. The problem isn't with the law. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, That it is good. Again, the law is vindicated. It's good. I agree with it. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, there's the problem. Sin's the problem. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This guy has no ability to carry out good. For I do not do the good I want. He's not saying occasionally I don't do it. Sometimes I don't do it. He says, I do not do the good I want, period. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Or as the NAS says, it's what I practice. I practice evil. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of God. Okay, very quickly, my observations from last week. 
this first. Romans chapter 6 and 7, those two chapters could be divided up into fourths. We have four sections in here. Each section has the three same basic components. The components consist of a question, a strong denial by no means, and an explanation of why what is proposed can't be true. Right? We looked at that. You have that repeat four times over in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Do we continue in sin? By no means. Why? And then he explains. Again, chapter 6, verse 15. Because we're not under law but under grace, do we continue in... or not? Under law, but under grace, do we continue in sin? By no means. Then he explains all the way through chapter 7, verse 6. Then in 7, 7, is the law sin? By no means. Then he explains it. Then again, we have the final section in 7, 13 through 25. Does that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. And then he explains it. My main objective for emphasizing these patterns is to drive home the reality that verses 13 through 25 are a unit of thought. We have to take that to heart. 13 through 25 are a unit of thought. That was my first observation Verse 13 can never be separated from verses 14 through 25. Never. The very reason that verses 14 through 25 exist are to explain why the proposition of verse 13 can't be true. That the law by no means brings death. You, the second observation I made last week. Verse 14 starts with the word for. For is a conjunction. That means no new thought comes at us in verse 14. This is a continuation of the thought that Paul started in verse 13. Third observation I made. What is being asked and what is not being asked? Paul is not asking whether or not Christians ever sin. Paul is explaining why the law doesn't bring death. Fourth observation, in verse 14, the man of Romans 7 says, I am of the flesh. Folks, that doesn't describe the Christian from verse 7-4 or 7-6. It describes the non-Christian in verse 7-5 who is in the flesh with active sinful passions. That was the fourth observation. Fifth observation. The man in Romans 7.14 is sold under sin. The Thayer Greek lexicon says this means entirely under the control of the love of sinning. The idea is that of being entirely enslaved to sin. Back in Romans 6.20 says you were slaves of sin, but now, Romans 6.22 says, you have been set free from sin. Doesn't sound like the same guy. 
set free from sin. He's a servant of sin. Doesn't sound the same. My sixth observation. The man in Romans 7.23, and you guys need to keep Romans 7 open this whole time. I want you guys being convinced of this from the Word of God, not because I'm saying it. The man in Romans 7.23 says of himself that his members are being mastered by indwelling sin. Romans 6.14 specifically says sin will not have mastery in the life of Christians. 7. The law of sin. I want us to think about the law of sin. The man in 7.23, if you look at your Bibles, is captive to the law of sin. The man in 8.2 is set free from the law of sin. Doesn't sound like the same man in both instances. The man in Rome, my eighth point, the man in Romans 7.25 is serving the law of God with his mind. The term serve here is the term that means to be a slave of. This man is a slave of the old written code. That's exactly what 7.6 says we must die to. It's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing. A ninth observation. Romans 8.2 Now listen to me. The man of Romans 7.24 cries, Who will set me free. The man of Romans 8.2 replies, the law of the spirit of life of Christ Jesus has set me free. The tenth thing. The man of Romans 7.19, if you look at your Bibles, the man of Romans 7.19 keeps on doing evil. This is not an occasional slip into sin. The NAS says this guy practices evil. And that is the term for keeps on. 1 John 3.8 says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. This guy is practicing sin. Now, you guys all ready for this? You hear it in my words. You hear it in my tones. You hear it in my emphasis. What is the conclusion of the whole matter? Well, let me ask you this. What do you call a man who is not free from sin, but in bondage to it? What do you call a man who is not occasionally, but continually keeps on doing evil? What do you call a man who with his mind is a slave to the old written code and whose bodily members are captive to the law of sin? What do you call a man who is of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin? Folks, those are all things the man in Romans 7 is called. What does the Bible call such a man? The Bible calls such a man lost. Period. Lost. If you're not yet convinced of this truth, I want to help convince you by showing you today how naturally and smoothly this text all comes together and just flows 
If we assume the man in 714 and following is not a healthy spiritual Christian, but is rather a sinner lost who has come under the conviction of the law. Let me show you this. Let's dive into the heart of the matter and that takes us to verse 13. Romans 13. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. Okay, Paul, explain yourself. You guys have your heads buried in the Bible? You go back to 7.10. Tell me what 7.10 says. What does 7.10 say? The commandment proves to be death to me. Now he turns right around and he says, is the law death to me? Well, Paul, you just said it was. I mean, you better explain yourself. Which is what he realizes he did. And he realizes there needs to be some explanation. So he says, it was the law. But it wasn't the law ultimately. It wasn't the law that was the sinister factor. It was sin that produced the death in me. Now stop right there. Sin does it. But how does it do it? It does it by producing death in us through what? Through the law. So what you need to see is the law is never, as good as it is, it's never a help to us because as sin, soon as sin comes along and takes hold of it, sin is the murderer and the law is the knife. Right? Okay. First and foremost, what is the issue here? Why does it matter if the law brings death to me or doesn't bring death to me? I mean, who cares? If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. The, the real issue is I better figure out how not to die. What is, why does it matter if I know all the mechanics behind this? If I'm facing condemnation, isn't it enough that I know it? You know what Paul says? Yes, it is massively important that you know the mechanics behind why the natural man has a sentence of death hanging over his head. Let me explain. The book of Romans is about how sinful human beings who deserve nothing but the wrath of God are made right with God. How they are justified on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us by His life, by His death, and by His resurrection. In the book of Romans, Paul reveals the most glorious the most magnificent truth that man could ever know. Our greatest problem is the stench of our sin and our guilt in the face of a just and holy God. And it has been dealt with by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who has provided a righteousness for us that is not our own. He earned it. It's imputed or reckon to us freely through faith alone, not through the works of the law. 
By faith, we look away from works of the law, away from performances of good, and we look and cling to and trust Jesus Christ, His merits, what He accomplished in His life and in His death, and it's in that alone we trust for our acceptance with God. That alone. This is the glory of the Gospel. Men and women saved on the basis of grace by the merits of Christ, all for the glory of God. This is the main thrust of Romans, and it is gloriously good news for the sinner. But here's the problem. Along the way, Paul has argued passionately against justification by works of the law. We do not get right by law-keeping. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It is by faith and by faith alone. And in the process, Paul has even said that the law is part of our problem. Not part of our rescue. Part of the problem. Romans 5.20, the law comes in to increase the trespass. It increases sin. Paul even goes so far as to say in Romans 7.4 that if you want to bear fruit for God, you will have to die to the law. The path to sanctification is being dead to the law. As long as you're under the law, far from bringing forth fruit for God, verse 5 of chapter 7 says we bring forth fruit for death. Clearly, Paul is saying the law is a big problem in getting right with God. But this presents Paul with two huge questions. Verse 7, is the law sin? Verse 13, does the law cause death? In other words, Paul, if you're telling me to turn away from law keeping to the righteousness of Christ in order to be justified, if you're telling me I need to turn away from that, and if I have to die to the law and be united to Christ to be sanctified, is it because the law is sin and is it because the law is death that I must at all costs get away from it? Now, Paul knows that if the answer to either of these questions is yes, his whole gospel comes tumbling down and cannot stand. Folks, the religion we have in the New Testament is built upon that of the Old. The Old Testament made the law of God out to be glorious. And it is. It's good. It's spiritual. It is holy. It is righteous. It is those things. And if we make it out to be sin... It comes tumbling down. It breaks the Old Testament all to pieces. And I'll guarantee you this. No Jew is going to have anything to do with anything Paul teaches if he's saying that the law is sin or if he says that the law brings death. He won't. He has undermined the entire gospel. So with all his might, Paul says, No! God forbid! May it not be by no means never! Never is the law sin. But the law gets exploited by sin. Sin seizes every opportunity to use the law against us to arouse more and more sin. 
Does it kill us? No! God forbid may it never be. The law does not cause death. Sin does it. How does it do it? It does it by using the law to kill us. Okay, that's the foundation. Now we're in a position to nail down the meaning of these verses. Now listen to me carefully. I'm going to make a statement that you need to take home with you. This needs to set all of your study of this section in the right course, in the right direction. Death is the issue of verse 13. You guys can open your Bibles. You can look at it. We are talking condemnation. The man in Romans 13 has the sentence of death upon him. That isn't even in question. The question is not whether this man faces condemnation or not. He does. The question is what brings his death. Not whether there is death. Paul is clearly declaring that death has been brought to him. Clearly. The matter that he is clarifying is who or what it is that brings this death. If you go back to verse 10, you see this whole thing really begin to start and resonate. Death is the issue. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. There it is. So is it the law then that brings death? No, he follows in verse 11 with sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Again, death is the issue. The law is the knife that slays us, but it is sin that seizes an opportunity to lay hold on that knife and stick it in us. The law is good. A knife in and of itself is good. They don't kill, but they are used to kill. And what is it that uses the law to produce death? Romans 7, 13, halfway through the verse. It was sin. And what does sin do? It produces death. Folks, it is the production of death that Paul is so concerned about. Now let me ask you this question. What kind of death does sin produce? Folks, it produces eternal death. It produces condemnation. That is the point here in verse 13. Paul is saying that eternal death was staring him straight in the face. And who is responsible? The law? No. It's sin that seizes opportunities through the law. It's sin that produces death in me through what is good. Sin ultimately is responsible for condemnation, not the law. The law condemns sin. But it's sin that's the problem, not the law. Now, folks... Listen very carefully. Grasp this. In verses 14 through 25, Paul hasn't all of a sudden decided 
he wants to start talking about whether Christians struggle with sin or not. That's the furthest thing from his mind at this point. He's concerned to show us that it's not the law that takes the initiative to kill us, but rather that sin uses the law to kill us. The man in Romans seven fourteen through 25 is the man that Paul is going to use to give us an example that affirms that what he has just said in verse 13 is true. Paul is going to give us an example that will lead us to believe and conclude that sin is responsible for death. And to conclude that though the law is good, it is helpless to do anything about my sin. This man in Romans seven fourteen through 25 has death and condemnation hanging over his head. And that, and the issue is, why? That's the issue. It's not whether he has death hanging over his head. It's why does he? What is responsible? And folks, when we view it this way, it all begins to come together. It all falls into place. It all makes so much sense. Okay. Now, as we've already established, Paul is not starting a new thought in verse 14. The word for at the beginning of this verse assures us that this is a continuation of his teaching in verse 13. The teaching that sin and not law is ultimately responsible for bringing death. Now listen, let's put aside what we've always thought. Let's forget what this commentator or that reformer or such and such a pastor believes about this text. And let's just look at what God's Word says. Let's take it at face value. Let's piece it together one step at a time. So look with me again at verse 13. Four glaring truths jump out at us from this verse. One, death is present. Guys, The man in verse 13, death is present. If it wasn't, he wouldn't even be asking the question about where it comes from. It's present. He realizes it. His dilemma is, who's bringing it? Death is present. Lay that down. That is a truth. Death is present. Two, sin is really bad and it brings death. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Sin is bad and it brings death. The third truth, the law is good, but it's powerless to prevent our death. That is clearly there. Now, I said four glaring truths. I don't know why I have four. There are three glaring truths. Those are the three that I want to emphasize to you. Death is present. Sin is bad and it brings death. The law is good, but it's powerless to prevent death. Now, guys, let me ask you this. If Paul wants to illustrate these three truths by using an example to drive home this point, wouldn't he use an example that would portray a man who is, one, under the sentence of death, two, controlled by sin that's killing him, and three, holding tightly to the law, which in the end just can't deliver him? 
I mean, those are the three major points of verse 13. If you're going to come into 14 through 25 and set forth an example now to clarify, to extenuate and continue on your argument, to enforce it, you don't all of a sudden decide, I'm going to jump over and start, start talking about whether Christians can sin or not. You're going to jump over and you're going to present a man who is faced with death, one who is in bondage to sin and it's killing him, two, and three, who has the law, but the law can never save him. It can't deliver him. That's the whole point of 13. That's exactly the kind of illustration and example that verse 14 is bringing for us. The word for ought to be conclusive in your mind. That that exactly, he's bridging right over into this. That's where he's going. He's enforcing and emphasizing his point. Does the law kill us? Do you see how verse 14 answers that question as to whether the law kills us? No. The law is spiritual. I mean, look at verse 14. It is good. Does the law kill us? No, not the law, but being sold under sin. That kills us. Do you see how this perfectly flows? It follows right in the flow of verse 13 if it's viewed that way. The reason I have condemnation and eternal death hanging over my head is because I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. Paul's whole agenda here is to identify who or what is responsible for my death. Not talking about whether Christians sin or not. He's talking about what kills men. Is it law or is it sin? It's not the law that's at fault. It's me being of the flesh and sold under sin. That's why I die. This is clearly the argument. Paul is talking about why people under the sentence of condemnation die. If the man in Romans 7, 14 through 25 isn't under condemnation... None of this makes sense. If he's not faced with death, none of it even fits. You've just broken the whole flow and gone off in a whole other direction with this thing. Then let me ask this question. Does the law save us? No. Sin actually uses it to kill us. Sin produces death through what is good, through the law. Now think with me again. Think with me. If Paul is going to demonstrate all of this by giving us a living example of the reality of this truth, he's not going to give us the example of some 20th century heathen guy down here selling crack. He's not going to give us the example of some heathen man who lived off in the Roman Empire somewhere that's without the law. He's going to give us the example of a man who very much has the law, desires the law, loves the law, has his mind filled with the law, serves under the law. And he's going to show us that no matter how much that man has it, loves it, desires to keep it, he's never able to do it. And why can't he do it? Because being in the flesh and sold under sin, all the law will ever be is an instrument in the hands of sin to keep us captive to the law of sin and ultimately to kill us. He never can get me. This guy agrees that the law is good. But for all the law he has in his life and in his mind, it never, ever, 
ever produces the ability for him to keep it. It never produces in him one who bears fruit for God. A sinner plus law always yields one who has no ability to carry out what is right. He's captive to the law of sin. That's what verse 23 says about the guy. In his flesh, he serves the law of sin. Verse 25. Okay, now stop with me right here. What is the law of sin? The man in verse 23 and verse 25 is clearly captive and in bondage to the law of sin. You see that. That's not even, there's no debate there. It's, it's staring at you in black and white, right in front of your eyes. What is the law of sin? The law of sin would be similar to speaking about the law of gravity. When we talk about the law of gravity, we mean the way gravity works, right? When we talk about the law of gravity, we're talking about what's true of it, what's characteristic of it. When we talk about the law of sin, we're talking about the way sin works. And how does it work? It makes you... I mean, we've seen it. Paul has established the law of sin right here in verse 7, or in chapter 7. How does it work? It takes law and arouses sin in us. It takes law and kills us. Folks, that's what this guy is captive to. He's captive to the law of sin. He's captive to the way sin works to arouse more sin. He's captive to the law of sin in the way sin kills us. He's captive to this very law. He can't break away from it. Sin has a certain way that it works and he is powerless to do anything about it even with all the knowledge and desire and delight he has in the law. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Now, brethren, look closely at chapter 8, verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now you will notice that Paul adds a very important description to the law of sin. He calls it by a fuller name. The law of sin and death. Folks, if you are captive to the law of sin, which the man in Romans 7 is, that's clear, verse 23, verse 25, it is the law of death to him. That's what the law of sin is. It's the law of sin and death. It brings death. If you are captive to the law of sin, it is the law of sin and death to you. Death is the issue with the man in Romans 7. It's hanging over his head. He's captive to it. The man in Romans 7 is under condemnation. That's why Paul starts in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
Therefore, he's building on it. He comes right back at us and he says, this guy's condemned. He's got a head full of law, but it can't do anything for him. He's in bondage. He's captive, sold under sin. This guy's got death over him. But in Christ, and you notice all through that section, there's nothing about this man being in Christ. There's nothing about this man having the Spirit of God. Nothing about it. And now he breaks forth in 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. This guy's condemned. The law has come to him. Powerfully so. In conviction. He can't do it. He's in bondage. But there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The man in Romans 7 is a man who knows the law. But he realizes sin is nevertheless killing him. He wasn't always aware of this. There was a day when he was alive. But then the commandment came. And instead of being the spiritually healthy Pharisee he always thought he was, he sees himself as wretched. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then, folks, that brings us to Romans 8.3. Notice the radical, stark contrast between what we just saw in Romans 7 and what Paul now says here in Romans chapter 8, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know what? God did what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. So the law is good, but it's Weak. Sin is what kills us. I've got to be delivered from sin and the law can't help me. In the hands of the sinful flesh, law only compounds my problem. I can't do what I know I should do. I'm captive to the law of sin, which is also the law of death. Sin is killing me. I'm under condemnation. The law does nothing to save me. But now, 8.3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. God sends His own Son to condemn sin in the flesh. The guy in Romans 7, sin is not condemned in his flesh. It's very active. It's very alive. He's sold as a slave to this sin. Christ comes in. He condemns it. Not just in a justification manner. Not just that He wipes out your guilt. He condemns it. He sets the sights on true, actual, practical sin in your life. And He comes racing in there and He conquers it and kills it. And that's why Romans 6.14 says sin will not have dominion in your life. He determines to take it down and to wipe it out. The law couldn't touch it. But Christ storms in and smashes it with a mortal blow. He's broken its power. And now what does it say? The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Again, this isn't about justification. The law is fulfilled in us. Not for us. In us. We actually become those that Romans 13, 8, and 10 say are those who fulfill the law. We love our neighbor. We love. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. We become lovers of men. Lovers of God. We are those who actually are fulfilling. By the power of Christ's Spirit, sin condemned. 
The law couldn't touch our sin. It only inflamed it. But the Son of God has done what the law could never do. He produces an actual righteousness in us. The power of the law was never such that it could make man pure and perfect because it kindled sin. It didn't put it out and extinguish it. Therefore, God clothes His Son with flesh. The likeness of our very sinful flesh in which He has utterly given the death blow, folks, to our corruption. Brethren, those who have and know and love and desire the law but always practice evil, they only show by their desire to do the law, that the law is good, but by their inability to keep the law, that sin is killing them through it. We've got to get out from under the law and under grace. Now, folks, listen to me. You know that the guy in Romans 7 says, I keep on doing evil. I practice it. That is what that word means. Keep on doing. He says, I practice it. In Romans 1.29 and following, it says those who practice evil know that they deserve to die. People who practice evil folks deserve to die. Romans tells us that. This guy says he practices evil. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't shroud it. He doesn't say once in a while, sometimes, occasionally. He says, I continuously do it. That is a person who is facing death. Death is the issue. Over and over and over. Being a slave of sin. Does he not say that? Sold to sin, folks, is being sold as a slave. That's what the term in the Greek means there. Sold is a particular word that means sold as a slave. If you are sold as a slave to sin, Romans 6.16 says that if you are a slave of sin, it leads to death. Folks, everything about this man in Romans 7 points to death. Everything. There's nothing here that says I'm a Christian. Everything about him, everything about him points to death. He says he's of the flesh. Folks, Romans 7.5 says that if you live in the flesh, you're, you're producing these works out of your members that bear fruit for death. Everything about this is screaming death, death, death. All of this makes perfect sense. If this is the meaning, this is exactly what the question back in 7.13 had to do with. Death. And what is responsible for death? The man in Romans 7 is of the flesh. Romans 8.13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you die. Again, death is the issue. Even Paul's delight for the law killed him. So, yes, the man in Romans 7 wanted to keep the law. He knew it promised life. Like those Jews in Romans 2.17 who called themselves Jews, relied on the law. In 1.23 says they boasted in the law, but they dishonored God by breaking the law. The guy in Romans 7 says over and over and over to us, I break the law. I don't want to. I don't do the good I want. I keep breaking it. And Scripture says, folks, if that's the case, you're dishonoring God by breaking the law. Romans 7.10, the very commandment he delighted in that promised life is proving to be death to him. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's always death. So in conclusion, I say this. 
If a man in Romans 7 does not have death hanging over his head, then this fails to explain Romans 7.13 because death is clearly the issue there. Paul can't explain what brings death unless his example illustrates someone who is, in fact, confronted by death. If the Roman seven man isn't confronted by death, you can't talk about whether it's the law that kills him or whether it's sin that kills him because nothing kills him. Death isn't even an issue. That's why this can't be a Christian. So it is critical that we see the man in Romans 7 as the man who has been brought under conviction but is still lost, still in bondage to sin. This is the Romans 7, 9 man. The law has come to him in convicting power. And sin has come alive. He now sees it. He feels it living and breathing inside him. He used to think he was alive, righteous. He felt spiritually healthy. But now he sees he's of the flesh, sold under sin. This fits so perfectly with the context earlier in 7, with what all is said as we come into 8. It fits so perfectly with what the question is in 7.13. Paul wants to prove two major points. The law doesn't kill us, sin does, but the law also can't help us. It never saves. This is exactly what Romans 7.14-25 through 25 portrays. Here is a man under sin, under law, whenever you have the combination of sin and law, the result is bondage, a slavery, a captivity, a death. And listen, folks, if, if you're not absolutely persuaded, something else comes up in your mind, listen, this, this falls in line with Romans 6. Romans 6 is triumphant. Sin, no dominion. I'm obedient from the heart. I used to be a slave of sin. Now I'm not. I know oftentimes people will run over to like Galatians 5 and they'll say, yeah, but the parallel. Folks, it's not a parallel. You go over to, to, to Galatians chapter 5 and what you have over there is a person who's not walking in the flesh. And Paul says over there, if you walk in the flesh and you do the works of the flesh, you die. He says over there, walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Walk in it. Those who walk in the Spirit, those who are in Jesus Christ, have put to death the passions of the flesh. Clearly, and I believe that's Galatians 5.23, yes, we know that the flesh fights against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, but everything about Galatians 5 is victorious. It's victory. Everything about Romans 6 is victory. Everything about Romans 7, 4, 7, 6, it's victory. Everything about Romans 8, 1, and following, it's victory. And yet in the midst of all this, it, so many have said, yes, but this man here in Romans 7, folks, it's not. It doesn't fit with Paul's whole argument. Now I realize I used to believe the other way, but I've looked at this text and I, every plausible argument I ever used to hold that old per position falls apart in face of this. Every one. Every single one. And I'll tell you what it does for us practically, folks. It takes us to a place where we view Christian life entirely victorious. Oh, there's a battle. We have to be putting these things to death through the Spirit. That's a battle, folks. We don't let 
sin reign in our mortal bodies. You don't let it. That takes effort. There's a battle. But everything about the Christian life in the New Testament is portrayed as victorious. Why do I say this? My beloved brethren, when you are confronted by sin, the way to look at sin is never, ever, I'm defeated, wretched man that I am. Never do you look at it and say, oh, the things that I want to do, I just don't find myself doing. That's what lost people do. What you do is you look at it and you say, by the Spirit of God and by that power of God in me, Jesus Christ has come into this world to conquer this sin and to make me a fulfiller of the law. And by God's grace, I am going to conquer this thing. I'm going to beat this thing. I'm going to win in this battle. I'm going to be victorious. We know there's a battle of sin. That is not the issue. And that's what I want you guys to see. Yes, there is a place to talk about whether Christians sin or not. But that is not what Paul's talking about at the end of Romans 7. And I was thinking at the 3 o'clock service, we would have a Q&A about this, but I forgot we were having the baptism. But we may do it. Maybe next week in the 3 o'clock service, we can have some open discussion. Because obviously in the two meetings, I can't talk about all the things that I have looked at over the last however long. But I want you guys to consider it in light of this, that the man of 714 through 25, the only way it becomes a plausible explanation of 713 is that this man is under death. And no matter how much law he's got, and I tell you this, folks, no matter how many rules, no matter how many regulations, no matter how much of the law you know, if you don't have the Spirit, you are dead in the water. It's Jesus Christ alone that you will find there is no condemnation. That's the only deliverance from the position this man is in. Ultimately, ultimately, if you are captive to the law of sin, it is a law of death, and you will die. And the only one who sets you free, the only one, God has done what the law could never do in sending forth His Son, robing Him in the likeness of sinful flesh, and condemning that sin. The law doesn't condemn it. Only Christ does. Amen.